within 12 months, I and a lot of other people uh, were turfed out and given our P45s and sent back out into the big bad world. There was a period of time where I thought, maybe that's it. Maybe I've got to go and do something else. On this week's episode of The Risk Equation, I had the pleasure of speaking with Simon Hill, Australia's premier soccer commentator and touted as the voice of Australian football. Simon has worked as a commentator for more than 30 years, calling World Cups, Champions Leagues, A-League Grand Finals and Ashes Series. He's regarded as the best in the business. Simon's journalism career kicked off back in 1991, and the challenges he's faced along the way have often left him in a dire position, out of work, without guarantees of employment. Simon's career has been peppered with misfortune, just the same as everyone's has. But despite these setbacks, Simon was able to reach the pinnacle of his career at this historic moment in 2005. Before we get there though, as it is for many journeys to excellence, we're starting with Simon's greatest failure. In 2002, where he had left his stable job at the BBC, joining what was meant to be the next big thing in European sports media, ITV. A year later, the company was bankrupt, leaving Simon with no job, no guarantee for his future, and a few burnt bridges. We begin this week's episode of The Risk Equation at this moment, Simon's lowest point. I went to the ITV Sport Channel, which was in uh, 2001. I was actually headhunted by ITV to leave the BBC, which, which I did, and thought I was going to be there for many, many years, and the channel went bust. I uh, didn't have a very good business plan, so within 12 months, I and a lot of other people uh, were turfed out and given our P45s and sent back out into the big bad world. It was quite a, a shock, to be honest, because I'd been continuously employed since I'd been the age of 23, and I was then 33, coming up to 34. There was a period of time where I thought, maybe that's it, maybe I've got to go and do something else. I was determined that I wasn't quite finished with sports and, and broadcasting and football in particular, so I started freelancing for a while. I'd built up, in the space of about six months, through my networks really and my contacts quite a decent portfolio of work and then it was thanks to another contact guy who I used to work with at the BBC who'd emigrated to Australia many years previously that I ended up coming over here he got in contact with me we'd stayed in touch down the years and uh, he said, look, there's a vacancy here for a football commentator. And I said, oh, well, that's good. I'm sure they won't want me. You know, they didn't know who I was. I lived on the other side of the earth. Why, why would they? But he went on about it so much that uh, I said, look, okay, I'll send in my CV and a showreel and, and see what happens. And uh, yeah, the rest, that was SBS television, by the way. Um, and the rest is sort of history. So, you know, it's, some of it is is chance or having good contacts, or just being in the right place at the right time, to be honest. I think that's a very humble way of approaching it, to say that you found success because of those contacts that you made. But in reality, building up that sort of portfolio, particularly when you're fairly young, you're starting out, you've lost your job, doing that sort of freelance work and finding the motivation to do that 
It sounds like a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, uh, it was. And to be honest, I, I can obviously relate that to my current environment, as, as most people know. I, I no longer work at Fox Sports. I was there 14 years. Uh, I left there at the end of June. It wasn't my choice. Um, and it was a shock, uh, although in some ways no real surprise. Um, so I'm in that predicament at the moment. And obviously it's exacerbated by the fact that we're dealing, all of us, with this uh, coronavirus, which is making work very, very very difficult to come by. A lot of companies are contracting, uh, and I don't mean handing out contracts, I mean reducing their outlay, and they're being very careful with their money, and I understand that. So uh, again, it's, you know, I've been fortunate enough in, in many ways that my networks again, and, you know, hopefully my experience and maybe a little bit of ability has, has enabled me to pick up some freelance work to start off with. I, I work for Optus Sport. Uh, for the month of August, I did a, a few radio calls for the A-League finals. I've been writing pieces for The Guardian. The problem with being a freelancer, it, it, it the, as you said, there's no weekly wage coming in. So you've got to be very proactive. You've got to be out there chasing work. You've got to be working your contacts. Um, and you've got to have belief in yourself a little bit. It's not easy. When you're looking at it now, almost 20 years later, the strategy and the difficulty hasn't changed. It's your experience that's changed, but the way that you're approaching it, that doggedness, that discipline, it's equally effective now as it was back then. Are you in your headspace approaching it differently, or do you feel like the passion for the sport and the passion for your career is still what brings you up and says, we're going to push through this, we're going to get to the other side of it? At its basis level, I still love football. It's, it's a drug that I've had since I've been you know, five or six years old, and I can't wean myself off it, really. I still have that desire to work in the game because I love it. I'm very passionate about it. It's not just a job to me, it's it's who I am. So I don't want to give that up. And I'll always be involved in some shape or form, even if it's only as a fan, you know, going watching my team. Uh, and look, you know, the difficulty that I have at the moment, whilst you're right that I've got a, a, a whole truckload of experience in various uh, genres and with a lot of different employers, I'm also 52. And the TV industry is, in particular, a, a young person's game these days. 20 years ago, I was still, in many ways, up and coming, uh, still relatively young, to, uh, you know, trying to make my mark. Now I've sort of done that. So it's it has both pluses and minuses, but uh, it, it's certainly not easy. And um, for all the, the the joys that I get from uh, getting a job and, and having a varied working life, uh, it's that insecurity of, of not having that weekly wage. And particularly as you get older, of course, you acquire more stuff like houses and cars and <laughs> mortgages and all that sort of stuff. So a lot of things you know need to be serviced to a much greater degree than when you're 33, 34. So it brings its own problems, but uh, you know, for the time being, I shall battle on. And at some point, if I'm not getting enough work, I'll have to do something else. But I, I hope that day is not quite there yet.
Hi everyone, thanks so much for listening. I just wanted to let you know that today's episode of The Risk Equation is sponsored by Altrop Coffee. A big thanks to Nick from Altrop for supporting the show and working alongside us. We were really excited when they first got in touch. Uh, they're an up and coming brand just like us at The Risk Equation, so we're really keen to work together and partner up. Altrop is an online coffee marketplace born out of the love of Melbourne's boutique coffee scene. And Altrop is aiming to offer an online platform that connects coffee lovers to Melbourne's best local roasters, all under the same roof, delivered conveniently to your door. Their aim is to make specialty coffee accessible to you anywhere, regardless of where you live, so that if you're looking for a Melbourne coffee, you can find one. In fact, one of my favourite brands that they stock, which I haven't been able to find almost anywhere else, is Padre. And that's a local Melbourne East Brunswick coffee store that has now opened up a roastery in Noosa. And so between Queensland and Melbourne, with Drop, I can get access to Padre's services regardless of where I am. So if you're keen on trying coffee from home that's well-priced, sustainable, and is supporting small Australian brands, essentially just doing all the things that we support here at The Risk Equation, then Drop is the place to get started and source everything you need. Nick and the guys over there have put together a code that you can use that helps support the show and gives you 10% off your first purchase. And that code is RISK, like the name of the podcast, The Risk Equation. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. We're still new to this sponsorship thing, so if there's a way you all think we can do it in a more engaging way, then please let us know. But now, back to this week's conversation. I want to take you to, I guess, the pinnacle as well, because as you say, there's a real undulation in this sort of industry. When you're at that point, when you're fulfilling all of your potential that you've been working toward, and how quickly all of that can change, but the highs are really high too. And the things that stands out to me is that even for someone who didn't grow up inculcated in soccer in the same way as you did in Manchester, that moment Australia qualifies for the World Cup in 2005 and you commentating uh, Aloisi's winning penalty and just the almost renaissance of soccer support that that stimulated in Australia, a country that has historically not just been uninterested in soccer, but in some cases openly hostile to it. And the historic moment of that, sitting there thinking, I was born for this moment I grew up dreaming of this moment, and here I am, sitting here commentating the most significant international event for this country across the world. That must have been an incredible experience. It was. World Cups, Asian Cups, uh, Grand Finals, all those big occasions, and I've been very, very fortunate to have commentated an awful lot of them. There were times throughout that journey, uh, and that was one of them, the, the Uruguay game and the World Cup in Germany the, uh, the year after, where you do take a moment to sort of look around you and go, wow. The thing with commentary and working in broadcasting in general is that the next game is very close. So you never really get time to sit and reflect on it. The one thing that's been good about leaving Fox and having this little break is that it has actually allowed me a little bit of time to look back on some of those moments and think, you know, I, I played a part in that, which even if it's only a small part as a broadcaster, and it was fantastic, all those experiences. 
were terrific. Um, and again, it's it, it takes you in so many different uh, directions, this job. Uh, I remember being in Kyrgyzstan, in you know, the middle of nowhere, Central Asia, uh, looking out to my right was this beautiful mountain backdrop, the Alatu mountain range. Um, and the stadium was packed and I was about to call Kyrgyzstan against Australia. And I remember thinking, this ain't bad for a kid from Manchester, you know? <laughs> I did all right. I'm also interested as well in the headspace that you get into when you're commentating some of those massive events. Is it just that you're that boy who grew up loving soccer, so you put on that hat and now you're going to talk about the game that you love? Or is there a sense of the magnitude of those moments, of the number of people who are listening? How do you navigate that? Still, even at 52, I I get a bit nervous before the very big games. I think it's good to have some nerves. If you're not excited or a little bit on edge by calling a big game such as a grand final or a World Cup match, then really you shouldn't be doing the job. It's excitement mixed with a little bit of nerves because you want to get it right for your audience. In many ways, it's like being a footballer itself. You do your hard work during the week and then on match day, it's about delivering that and, and trying to you know, tell the story. That's what we are. Basically, we're storytellers. And I often think that you know, the best compliment you can get after a game is if nobody really says too much about you. I love that you talked about anxiety as being a potentially positive thing because I know that it's become very common now to think of it as something that's going to be completely detrimental to you and to try and limit it to mitigate it. When we talk about work-life balance, a lot of the time we talk about it in that context. But certainly in surgery, a lot of the conversation about mental health and how people approach what they do doesn't take into account always the value in caring enough about something that you're concerned about the potential for a poor outcome and having that have a physical response in you. Because if you care enough about something to focus on it to that point where you're physically concerned about the potential for a poor outcome, it means that you're going to take it seriously to the point that you're going to do your best. And there's obviously a curve there where it can become counterproductive if you fall too far in one direction. But if you're not taking it seriously enough that you care, you're being too blasé to do the job. It's about finding that balance. And do you feel that came naturally to you? That when you stood in the booth for the first time, that sort of feeling of how to deal with that came intrinsically or did it come with experience yeah a lot of that came with experience in my early days i used to get very very nervous uh you know before games you're trying to build your career your reputation and you don't want to stuff it up I tended to find that as soon as the whistle blew and you were into the flow, there's almost like a footballer, you know? I'd imagine when you're walking down the tunnel, you see the crowd, you go, blimey, and you're nervous. But as soon as the whistle blows, you sort of get into a, a bit of a routine. Obviously, experience certainly helps, but there are still times, you know, when sometimes the nerves can be a little bit too much. And I have a a sort of a mental game that I play with myself if if I get to that point, which still happens from time to time, not a lot. But, you know, I sit and I, I take a couple of deep breaths and I envisage that I'm in a bubble. 
and that nobody can get into that bubble and it's just me and I'm talking to a mate or my dad or just one person and that seems to sort of help for me a little bit it doesn't always work but it's uh, it's a good little mechanism to try and just keep the nerves at bay as I say I think some nerves are good but providing it doesn't take over to the extent where it impacts upon your performance and, and that's where it becomes detrimental and, and very difficult to manage I think I know exactly what you're talking about with flow because when you're operating you can sometimes get to the end of a six hour case and just not realize that time has passed because you just get into a rhythm where everything is coming at you in a way that you're expecting your hands are moving in a way that you've trained for a thousand times before and it just seems second nature that you get to the end of it and you're like wow I didn't even know that we'd gone to that point and it's dark outside and you're like well that was a successful day but it doesn't affect you in the moment to moment you just get into that state and I remember we were talking to Sam Freaker, an Olympic diver. He's 18 years old. And he was talking about the way that he steps onto the board and the motions that he goes through. And sometimes he just feels he's already done the dive before he's even done it. Because he gets to the end of it and it's like deja vu. He's worked through it so many times that the motion is so natural that he doesn't even have to think about it anymore. And it's fascinating to me that in professional commentary, you're describing a very similar phenomenon. It is. And I tell you that the strangest thing is when you put the microphone down at the end of the 90 minutes, if you ask me to say right there and then, right, what did you just say? I, I, there's not a single sentence that I could relate to you because you're focused so intensely throughout that 90 minute period. What I do um, is I go back and I watch nearly all my games uh, after I've done a commentary. I'll leave it a day or two, particularly if I've had a bad one. Um, but I'll go back and I'll re-watch it. And it's funny, in my head, I, I, I'm saying, I know what I'm gonna say next. I know what phrase is coming and that should have been this one or it should have been the other. So it's, it's a way of not only being uh, self-critical and, and sort of learning from your mistakes, which I think is also important because, look, I don't know what your profession is like, but professional commentary is, is quite a solitary profession. There's no, there's no boss that comes to you every single week and says, right, let's go through your call over the last 90 minutes. When you get to the level that I'm at, it's almost sort of expected that you know what you're doing. So you have to, be, you have to self-analyze a lot of the time. And plus, there's not a lot of people who do this job and people think it's very straightforward. It's not. It's very niche. So there's not a lot of feedback. So you have to sort of self-appraise and think, right, that wasn't so good. I, you know, I won't do that next week. Or I've used the same phrase. I need to cut that one out a little bit. It's a fascinating uh, phenomenon, much more involved than I think uh, a lot of people realize. They think we just go on and talk for 90 minutes, not the case. I'm fascinated by the change in the industry since the development of social media as well. Because thinking about this now in terms of the 20 years you've talked about between 2002 and now, that's a radical change in the way that fans interact with sport. It's almost unrecognisable between those two periods in time. And I'm curious as to how that has changed the way that you've approached the job and approached analysing what you do and the way you've interacted with the fan base. I was not a big fan of social media, uh, I have to say, up until recently. I think it's it can be a very detrimental media in some ways because the loudest voices are normally the most negative ones and you, you cop a lot of stick. 
as a person in the public eye, however big or small your role is, you tend to cop it. If you're a politician or a footballer or a commentator or a referee, you're going to cop it. It's as simple as that. And you have to have a pretty thick skin and a pretty strong uh, mental attitude to be able to deal with that. And not everybody can. And I have to admit, at times, I've found it very, very difficult. And of course, the moment you bite back on social media and uh, maybe correct a mistruth is to open the door to even more abuse. I would imagine there's very few studies been done on this, but I would imagine long term it's it's quite detrimental to to mental health, and I'm not sure employers are fully cognizant of this fact. They love social media, of course, because it amplifies and promotes their product, uh, and I get that, and we are conduits for that, but we don't always get an awful lot of help or support when dealing with abuse on social media. And and let me tell you, in, in recent years. That has started to bleed over into real life as well. You'll get the odd one who will think it's well within his rights to come up and, and have a crack at you in the street when you're walking your dog or, you know, going to the shops. Um, so it can be pretty difficult to deal with. And it's not something you're trained for. You know, I, I didn't want to be a star. I didn't want to be a media personality. I just wanted to work in the game that I loved. Now, some of the stuff that's come with that has been very nice, but I wouldn't say that I'm 100% at ease with it. Never have been, really. I think the social media companies who make potloads of money out of all of our use of this wonderful tool, I think they have much more of a responsibility. And I think if you're going to have one of these social media profiles and spout stuff into the great uh, ether out there, you've got to have your real name on there. And you've got to have the place that you work as well. We all do. We have to take responsibility for our words. I think everybody should, ha should have to do that. At the moment, there's far too many people who abuse uh, behind the anonymity of a keyboard and a picture of a dog or a car. That's not right. The likes of Twitter and Facebook and all the other social media companies, I think they have a responsibility because people's mental health is at stake here. We, we've seen, um, uh, there's a TV presenter, I don't know if you want me to mention her name, but uh, uh, Charlotte Dawson many years ago, who took her own, <coughs> excuse me, took her own life. And a lot of it was because of this abuse she was copping on social media. I mean, that's a terrible thing to happen. It's unacceptable. It is unacceptable. I have such a sympathy and an empathy for people who work in those sorts of industries where every single thing that you've done is in public view and you're having a bad day and the words come out wrong. There's a thousand people or 10,000 people who are there to say something about it. You know, that's a heavy burden to carry. And I imagine to a certain degree that it makes it a little bit more difficult to enjoy that thing you love when there's that other side to it. Yeah, look, it certainly changed the job. I wouldn't say that it spoiled my enjoyment of the game. And, and look, I stress here, 98, 99% of the people that I come into contact with are great. 
Uh, they, they're just football fans like me. They want to talk about the game or they want to say hello or they're complimentary. Most people are, are fantastic. It's it's always the minority that, that, that spoil it for everybody else. But, it, you know, it can be intimidating when that, you know, that mob does get on your back and it can make your job very difficult to execute. To be honest... You know, if if they want to criticise me for a call I've made during a game, I I don't necessarily like it, but I understand it because football is an emotional sport. All sport is emotional, particularly when you're supporting a team. What what gets me is the the nastiness that sometimes comes on the back of it because of something you might have said, you know, during a football game. And, and they extrapolate that out and believe that that's your true personality. Well, of course, you know, people are only get a very specific snapshot of who you actually are as a person during a 90-minute football game. There's a million different facets to me and, and to every single human being on the planet. I just reveal one part of me during a 90-minute uh, football call. But there's that nastiness, and that's, as I say, that's when I tend to get um, the block button out or I, I would have no qualms in, in taking it even further because I think people have a responsibility. Um, you know, they, these are very emotive subjects and particularly in the world we live in, you have to be very careful with words, very careful. People have to take responsibility for their words. Well, I think if anyone was ever to doubt your principles or your character or your commitment the love of the game that we just have to look at that picture behind you on the wall to know that <laughs> yeah. this is a deep and abiding love do you know what that picture is manchester city winning back in the day that's right winning the fa cup and i think if anyone's gotten to your level of the sport and still has those memories up on their wall <laughs> they're as true in heart to the sport as anyone ever could be and it's been a real pleasure simon to have the opportunity to talk to you today about your journey and the way that you've approached it i really hope that our listeners get a benefit from that certainly as much as I have yeah I hope so too thank you very much for having me that was uh, a very enjoyable chat